So uh, let's get going. Uh, Dr. Rachel Pickering uh, speaking to us on uh, introduction to torture and ill treatment. And in today's global society, refugees who are fleeing man's inhumanity to man can be found across the, the globe, and yet they still bear chronic physical, mental, and spiritual scars. And healthcare professionals working within and near to police stations and prisons and other places of detention can all too easily find themselves sucked into turning a blind eye to ill treatment and even frank torture. And it can sadly be a slippery slope from that to medical involvement in torture. The law is difficult and complex and you don't find the information you need in a healthcare library. And uh, so and Dr. Rachel is well qualified to address this. She's a British trained family medicine specialist since 2007. She's majored on offender healthcare. And when in the UK, she locums within English prisons. She's the founder of Integritas Healthcare, which is an NGO with a heart for detainees delivering healthcare expertise, advocacy, research, and training. And uh, the webinar is going to be coming to you from Integritas's base on the western coast of Luzon in the Philippines. Rachel is married to fellow prison, uh, fellow prison doctor Mark, who is also the CEO of the Christian Medical Fellowship in the UK, one of ICMDA's largest member organizations. And uh, for Rachel and Mark, their greatest joy is their uh, young adult daughter, Zoe, who spent most of her life hopping in and out of Asian prisons. Uh, I'd say uh, to, to help people, not, not for repeat offenses. So she's become a great healthcare assistant in her, her, her own right. And, and today, uh, together with Rachel, we've got Esther Cutting. Esther's uh, soon to become a fifth year medical student, continuing her studies in Newcastle in the UK, where she lives with her husband, who is training in theology, and they work as, as youth pastors in their local church. And Esther is developing her interest in advocacy and the specific healthcare needs of vulnerable patients, which she's been exploring through her previous work with Christians Against Poverty. And at the moment, the reason she's in the Philippines on the same screen as, as Rachel is that she's in the middle of a medical elective out there, has been there for two months already. Coming back, it's been fascinating to hear her story and what she's been learning. So Rachel and Esther, just uh, I'd like to have you with us today. And uh, over, over to you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Peter. Well, thank you for having us, ICMDA. It's lovely to be back. And this is part one of our introduction to torture and ill treatment. And we hope to be able to talk more about other aspects which are above and beyond the scope of to today's webinar. We hope to be able to talk about those at a later date. So, just to give an overview about what we'll be doing in the next half an hour, I'm going to be introducing the subject and talking about why it's important we learn about torture and ill-treatment rather than just the care of people who've been tortured and ill-treated. We're going to talk about why it is that getting involved in torture and ill-treatment, abbreviated TATE in English, is an international issue, a Christian issue, one with medical and dental aspects, and a lot of associations and ways to get involved, so ICMDA. We're going to summarize, look at some resources 
give you a hint about what we could cover in future sessions. And then finally, as Peter said, come back for a Q&A session. And we love questions. There are many things that confuse people about the subject, and we would love to answer whatever questions you can come up with. So uh, just a little bit about me, as Peter said, I'm a family medicine specialist known in the UK as a GP. I've worked behind bars majorly now for more than 16 years. And apart from a few specialist interests uh, that I've picked up because of my family situation, my daughter is autistic and I really care about autistic prisoners. I've also developed by necessity, sadly, uh, an interest in the detection and prevention of torture and ill treatment. It's a real joy that so many CMF UK doctors are now going to work behind bars. And I would encourage you, even if torture and ill treatment medicine is not for you, to consider going to work in your local secure environment if it's appropriate to do so. So please get in touch if you'd like to discuss just that. As Peter said, I work a lot overseas and I've worked especially in the Philippines and surrounding places since 2015 a lot. It's a joy to be back out here since the pandemic prevented play for a couple of years. And I'm really enjoying being back in the Western Pacific culture. As Peter also said, I co-founded Integritas along with Mark and another CMF doctor in 2012, and we do have a base in the Philippines. And now over to Esther. Hi everyone, uh, my name's Esther Rutter. Uh, I'm a, an English medical student studying at Newcastle University, and I'm just finishing off my fourth year doing my medical elective um, before I start my fifth year and then become a doctor. And I've been doing my medical elective the last two months in the Philippines with Integridad, um, learning about offender healthcare in this setting. So it's been a jump in the deep end, um, and I do have particular interest in vulnerable patient groups. So I've been learning a lot from my time out here. So thanks for having me today. It's a pleasure. It's lovely having you with us, Esther. Okay, so just uh, five brief slides about our heart. So we do a lot of offender healthcare in countries where the state either oh, doesn't at all or doesn't do it properly provide uh, good quality or free offender healthcare. And we get up to all sorts from pretty major minor surgery through to a pandemic feeding program. And you can see our Philippines manage their passing little rice um, and meat packets into a very crowded police cell there. We do a lot of uh, expertise work, both in high income and low income countries about torture and ill treatment. And you can see there the documentation of the neurological sequelae of handcuffs being applied too tightly. And you can also see uh, the result of somebody who had their arm broken during a police beating. We advocate for people who have been ill-treated. And you can see here somebody who's had uh, deliberate self-harm on their body, but because they had hurt themselves rather than say, been injured in a knife fight in prison, the healthcare staff thought it was appropriate to use staples rather than say glue or steri strips or um, needle and suture and to not use anesthetic. So that's medical torture um, because he had dared to harm himself and cause some extra work. We also raise a lot of public advocacy for groups of people. And you can see my daughter there, Zoe, speaking on a national radio in the UK about the needs of autistic prisoners. 
We do a lot of research. Whatever we do should be research-based and offender healthcare and torture and ill treatment is a real mission field in terms of good quality medical research. There is so little in peer-reviewed literature and there needs to be more. And then finally, we do training. We train people to deliver good offender healthcare. And you can see um, a little moulage going on up there. And then down below, another student working in a prison that's controlled by a Asian gang. So that's us. Um, but why, why are we bothering talking about torture and ill treatment? Well, unfortunately, it's because it's rife in many countries across our globe including some pretty high income countries. And in our increasingly global society, victims of torture and ill treatment who've been abused in other countries, maybe their home country on the other side of the globe to where you're sitting right now, they could end up in just about any place in the world, including your country. And yet very few medical and dental schools these days teach forensic medicine. It used to be much more common and they don't teach at all about the detection and treatment of torture and ill treatment. Hence why we are here giving you this webinar today. Well, it's very important for ICMDA members because it's an international thing, as I said. I've seen people from so many different countries. Uh, it's a dirty hands opportunity for Christians to get involved in something that Traditionally, a lot of people go, Ugh, I really don't want to get involved with that, or let me refer you to somebody who can help. But there aren't many people offering that help. So it's a real opportunity for Christians. There are medical and dental methods of torture and sequelae of it. So it's a real ICMDA opportunity. And there are many different ways to associate with this field of healthcare. So please do pay attention and see what God might be calling you to do. It is a yucky subject, an upsetting subject. If you are adversely affected by this and you feel the need to speak to somebody, you're very welcome to email us and we can meet you on Zoom, do some emotional first aid and signpost you to some appropriate help. We also have our own counseling a contract with a very good occupational health provider who can deliver counselling for you if you need it. So I've told you how common it is, but Christians really do need to get to grips with this subject for another reason, because it's important to learn about how we consider victims. Uh, a lot of people think that people who've been tortured or ill-treated have really, yeah, it was a nasty thing to happen to them, but they kind of brought it on themselves. You know, they were in the wrong, right, wrong place, wrong time, got involved with the wrong crowd, ended up in prison. Yeah, it wasn't nice what happened to them, but wouldn't happen to you and I. Well, that's not true for starters. And anyway, um, there's a very wonderful theologian who uh, was executed in the closing days of the Second World War, uh, Pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And one of the things he wrote from his own prison cell was that we really do need to get involved, not just in bandaging up the wounds of people who unfortunately have got mixed up in all this business of injustice. 
but instead we need to drive a spoke right into the mechanism of cruelty, into the wheel of cruelty itself. And if you're going to drive a spoke into a cruelty apparatus, you need to actually understand how that apparatus works. And that's why we're going to talk a little bit to start with about what actually torture and ill treatment is before we go on, hopefully in another part of this webinar series to talk about how to care for the victims that it has produced. So I'm just gonna read that one more time. We are not to simply bandage the wounds of victims beneath the wheels of injustice. We are to drive a spoke, stop the wheel itself. So let's learn about the wheel of torture. So about its international uh, flavor, there are four things we're going to just briefly touch on. The legislation, the definitions, the methods and the systematization, and that varies massively. Legislation, um, each country just about who thinks torture is illegal will have something in their national legislation. So in the UK, the Human Rights Act is the relevant piece of documentation. There is the Council of Europe, which was convened shortly after the Second World War, and the European Convention on Human Rights, which the Council of Europe um, oversees and adjudicates through the European Court of Human Rights, has Article 3, which says, no one shall be tortured or ill-treated. European country, European Union country members have a charter of fundamental rights, and that words things in a more positive way. It says that everyone has the right to integrity of the person. The United Nations has a convention against torture, which many countries are signed up again uh, to. And the World Medical Association, which is the umbrella body for all national medical associations, such as the British Medical Association, the American Medical Association, has the Declaration of Tokyo and other rules that talk about how doctors, and by extension other healthcare professionals, though they are specific to doctors, should not involve themselves in um, torture in any way. How do we define torture? Europe doesn't actually have a definition for it. Instead, judges in the European courts decide after referring to its previous case law and hearing arguments and using their own wisdom. The UN, in its Convention Against Torture, has a very wordy definition, which majors on the fact that it needs to be severe pain and suffering. And also it excludes anyone who's not acting in an official capacity. So a gangster torturing another gangster would not be torture by this definition, but a prison warden torturing a prisoner would because they're a public employee. It also excludes acts of corporal or capital punishment that are uh, sanctioned by a court. So if a judge says, I sentence you to five years in prison and being flogged. That's not torture under the UN definition. And then there are some other bodies such as an inter-American convention which puts much more emphasis on subtle things and doesn't actually say it has to be the state doing it. And also recognizes more the concept of psychological torture 
um, methods that are intended to obliterate people's personalities, that kind of thing. When it comes to ill treatment, again, definitions are hard to come by. The Council of Europe tends to use the phrase inhuman or degrading treatment or punishment, whereas the UN says cruel inhuman or degrading treatment or punishment. And how does torture and ill treatment relate together? Well, the blue circle represents uh, ill treatment and the red um, circle represents torture here. Torture is a subset, a subset of ill treatment. And using the UN definition as an example, you can see here that flogging somebody in a police station um, against the law in order to force a confession would count as torture. But then if that person is taken to court and the judge orders them to be flogged as part of their punishment, then that is not torture. So the same action in the same country can be torture depending on how it sits within that country's criminal justice system process. And then regarding ill treatment, well, the language is very subtly different, but um, there are a few uh, guidelines that are given um, rather than strict definitions. So the Council of Europe actually has published standards on, for example, what it considers to be too crowded a cell, six meters squared if you're in a single cell, four meters squared per person if you're in a shared cell. The United Nations doesn't actually have published standards, but there are some uh, rules called the Nelson Mandela rules and specifically female ones, the Bangkok rules, that apply as guidance for how people should be treated, but they're slightly different than actual inspection standards. So how do we decide where the red circle ends and the wider blue circle begins? Where's the boundary between torture and ill treatment? Well, that's a really hard one, and it's a lot vaguer than you might think. So, for example, um, it often depends on who's talking. Last week, Esther and I asked a few prisoners this question. Has there been any torture or ill treatment? And one said... No, everything's absolutely fine, Doctor. And the other said... Actually, I'm, I'm being tortured daily, Doctor. It's awful. Um, and that was, that was a surprise, the second answer. So I said, what do you mean? And the person who said they were being tortured daily said, there are huge rats everywhere. My mattress is damp, I'm outside, my food is moldy. And the other one who said everything was fine, I said, are you sure everything's fine? Well, they've stopped beating my feet every day now. So I'm, I'm quite fine now. Beating feet for lacquer, uh, for langer is, is a well-known form of torture. So often people will use different language uh, for what they're experiencing. But the other problem is that legally, as we've seen, because of definition problems, we have to be very careful in our semantics. And so quite a tactful thing that is often seen in published reports is something like this. We received credible testimony and found evidence of ill treatment that was so severe, it could be sent to amount to torture. So you need to be very careful with your language. And that's very politically correct language. Definitions can also be looked at um, what type of ill treatment or torture you're experiencing and physical, environmental, 
psychological and sexual are the four categories that are usually thought of. And you can see here some Venn diagrams that are intersecting. So, for example, um, with ill treatment, a common example would be simple things like overcrowding, no private toilets, no healthcare, underfeeding. But with torture, an example of physical torture is flogging. Environmental would be being kept in an ice cell, a very, very cold cell. Psychological torture, such as mock execution, is very traumatic. And then rape would be a common form of sexual torture. You can get a form of torture that ticks more than one of these boxes. So, for example, enforced nakedness is both psychologically distressing and sexual. Electrocuting somebody's genitals is both physical and sexual. Threatening somebody with the awful um, uh, ill treatment of being put in a sweat box is environmental and psychological. And getting frostbite from a cold cell obviously is physical damage due to an environmental problem. And in theory, you could get um, a torture that ticks all four boxes, like being naked and then, you know, abused sexually in a sweat box. There is no end to the inventiveness of human cruelty. Also, you can have the same experience that is a different type of torture to two different people. So for example, a husband and wife are arrested and they're put into adjacent cells. They can't see each other, but they can hear each other. The wife is genitally electrocuted, physical and sexual torture, and the husband has to sit listening to her screams. That's environmental and psychological. And many people who haven't cracked and confessed to something under direct torture themselves will do so when their loved one is tortured. And then the last factor we need to consider under the international side of things is that um, systems in different countries vary, especially as regards how uh, torturing or treatment relies on medical um, uh, complicity. So I met a, a doctor at a conference in, in England and we introduced ourselves and I told him that I was an English prison doctor and he was quite upset and he said, how can you do this job? You know, our country, doctors won't do it. They have to import doctors from poorer countries to work in our prisons. And I was a bit offended and I said, well, it's a great job. Why should I be ashamed? And he said, well, because you have to supervise people being flogged and you have to go to executions and that kind of thing, don't you? I said, no, not in Britain. We haven't flogged anyone in prison since 1962 and we haven't executed anyone in prison since 1964. So different countries have different experiences professionally and as far as the law is concerned. Christian, let's move on to the C in ICMDA. It needs a Christian response. It doesn't just need Christians doing it, but it, we need to think about this biblically, theologically. And I believe there is a biblical mandate to get involved in this, as well as a tremendous opportunity to develop holistic healthcare to a very needy population. So Psalm 102, 
talks about how God has historically always cared about victims of ill treatment. It says, the Lord looked down from his sanctuary on high, from the heavens he viewed the earth to hear the groans of the prisoners and release those condemned to death. Esther is particularly fond of Isaiah and she brought this uh, passage to my attention just today. I loved it so much that we're sharing it with you now. Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save. No one calls for justice. No one pleads a case with integrity. They rely on empty arguments and speak lies. The Lord was appalled that there was no one to intervene, so his own arm worked salvation for him. Magic. We know that Jesus himself was tortured to death. Execution through crucifixion was the ultimate torturous death. And Jesus was probably cared for. Some people believe it's a way of um, making his situation even worse with wine vinegar on wounds. My personal belief is that this is an example of somebody caring for Jesus, even though they couldn't stop him being executed. It says a jar of wine vinegar was there. So they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. Um, and the early church, um, big leaders in the early church, such as Paul and Cyrus, were tortured, severely flogged, flown into prison. And this passage here, which we won't read out, talks about how they didn't escape, even when they had the chance to do so. They'd been preaching to fellow prisoners, made a very deep impression on the warder. And the, the warder, the jailer, actually went and cared for their wounds before coming to faith himself. And the book of Hebrews says that we really do need to get involved here. Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. Okay, powerful stuff. And again, back to my favorite 20th century theologian, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he wrote, we must learn to regard people less in the light of what they do or omit to do and more in the light of what they suffer. So let's move on to the N and the D. Torture can indeed be medical and ill treatment is very commonly dental. So Esther is going to share some of the things that have been impacting her deeply in the last couple of months. Medically, um, this is a man I saw, just to illustrate, and then Esther will talk around. He was um, in a solitary confinement cell. He hadn't been out of it for so long that he developed contractures. And we did try and get him out. He walked with bent knees and he was environmentally suffering over an open sewer that he's perching above there. And he was both physically and mentally ill, whereas when he went in beforehand, he was only physically ill. And he was put in there for the crime of having an infection. Okay. So Esther, what experience would you like to share? So as a medical student, um, I previously hadn't had much exposure at all to victims of torture and ill treatment. And um, so the last few months have been hugely enlightening. Um, one patient who stands out in my mind is a patient who didn't um, speak English. So he was offered an interpreter. He was um, a fellow prisoner and he was offered this interpreter via the um, jail mayor who himself is incarcerated and he refused to use the interpreter. So I agreed to do a physical on him um, without the interpretation. And as I was doing it, he began to speak to me. 
he began to say some names and cross his fingers. So I, I showed that I was listening. Um, I lent him, made good eye contact, and he started, he started miming to me. And I recognized the mimes um, as common to those who um, had been electrically electrocuted um, as a form of torture previously with um, miming electric clips and he mimed them going to his ears, to his nipples and to his um, genitals. Now we, we don't show that, share the same language there, but I could um, tell that he was disclosing information to me and it's a very difficult situation because how can I document that? That's, it's what he's disclosing, um, but I don't know if that's past or present and um, a difficult situation. Mm -hmm. So working in this field, you're often dealing with just what you've got in front of you. It's very messy healthcare, and uh, you just need to pray for wisdom and do the best that you can and always think about what is the safest thing for the patient in front of you. And then dentally, this is a man I found in solitary confinement. He'd been there for five years, kept almost always in the dark. I don't know how many teeth he had when he went into solitary confinement, but he had exactly one and a half teeth, which you can see there. And um, we often, dental torture is relatively rare, actually pulling somebody's teeth out. There are more creative methods like um, putting uh, chili uh, oil on open sores in, in the mouth, that kind of thing, it's horrific. But um, Esther found something that was quite shocking, even to me, about just how neglect, um, ill-treating somebody through neglect, not giving them basic supplies like toothpaste, toothbrushes, can impact on somebody's welfare. Mm -hmm. We found a gentleman who had a history of five years of toothache. Um, and if you imagine the circumstances of normal um, prison healthcare in certain countries, and then he was considered a psychiatric patient, so he was perhaps neglected even further. So he'd had no treatment for five years, asked him to open his mouth and it's no wonder he's in pain. You can see right to the root of the teeth that he does have left and um, big abscesses, infection and open wounds um, with, with no pain treatment. And it was destroying right up to the roof of his hard palate. I've never seen such exposed palate um, from severe caries. It was horrific, but because he's quite psychotic, he couldn't express what was going on. We need to speak up for these people. And sometimes you'll get both together. This is a man I saw a few years ago who'd been tortured um, by the order of one of the prison officials, made the other prisoners do it. And you can see five fractures here, maxillofacial fractures. We rarely um, have these cases operated on, but in this case, it was necessary to save his life because his jaw had locked, so he couldn't even swallow water, let alone eat. He'd been like that for a week. He was dehydrating to death rapidly, and it took an awful lot of effort to get him uh, saved and operated on. The bureaucracy to intervene just in one case is sometimes unbelievable, and that's just to get their healthcare sorted out, to actually start to safeguard their future, so that it doesn't happen again, is another tier of complicated. And if you've been touched or interested by what we've been saying here, then how can you associate with torture and ill-treatment victims? Well, it really depends on where in the world you are. 
Uh, there are many things I could suggest, and I love to communicate with people around the world and advise them, encourage them to learn more. Uh, we offer opportunities like Esther has with Integritas electives, shadowing experiences, that kind of thing. But you know, no matter where you are in the world, if you are interested and want to know how to take the next step, then please do get in touch and I would be very happy to advise. So in summary, God cares, so we should too. There are many opportunities, both direct and indirect, to get involved in both rich and poor countries. But do take some expert counsel before you get involved, even if you're only planning to offer an advice service rather than hands-on care. And even if you decide that this isn't for you, that's, uh, that's fine. But do pray, please pray for us and all the other Christian healthcare professionals and human rights professionals and legal professionals working amongst the world's 11 million plus detainees and myriad more ex-detainees, many, many of whom have been tortured and more widely ill-treated. Resources that you might find helpful, uh, the Bangkok rules, um, the uh, CPT, uh, the Committee for the Prevention of Torture from the Council of Europe Standards. We can talk more about that in the next uh, part of the series. If you're in Europe, you will like East Street, West Street. It's part history, part um, international humanitarian law. Tremendous book by the founder of the International Justice Mission, Good News About Injustice. Uh, Integritas, if you look at our website, we're publishing chapter by chapter, a peer written introductory textbook, Introduction to Torture and Ill Treatment. And we would love to see and, and hear from you what you think about that. The Nelson Mandela rules. If you're based out in Asia or the Western Pacific, you will probably really enjoy the Heavenly Man, the story of a Chinese torture victim. If you're based in the Americas, especially the States, torture team looks at how legislation and can be changed and practices relabeled in order to permit man's inhumanity to man and it's written specifically in the aftermath of 9-11 uh, with reference to Guantanamo Bay and uh, dating back to Romania when it was a communist country uh, the biography of Richard Wurmbrand, the Romanian pastor who was severely tortured and incarcerated for many years, tortured for Christ, is a very difficult but incredibly important work to read. Other learning options include the health and justice track that Integritas runs for the British CMF. And we have international places. The next course starts in January. We have a month focusing on each patient group that we consider particularly vulnerable. And there's a large portion of that on prisoners and torture victims. We also have free places if you're coming from a financially challenged background. And obviously, if you've enjoyed, oh, maybe enjoyed is the wrong word, if you've found useful this uh, webinar, then please do consider joining us if and when ICMDA and we decide to put on further uh, webinars within this series. If we do do another one, then uh, we would hope to look at disclosure, what to do when somebody talks to you that this has happened to them and how to document it. There's a whole layer of stuff to know about that. 
how to advocate for somebody who's sitting in front of you, how to report it and when to report it and if to report it. Very big safeguarding questions and the healthcare issues that these very unfortunate people tend to present with. Here is our contact details and our website. And now we'll hand you back to Peter so that he can facilitate the Q&A. Thank you, Peter. Thanks very much, Rachel. Uh, that was absolutely brilliant, uh, incredibly comprehensive. You, you talked about it being an introduction to ill treatment and torture, but actually I think there will have been a huge amount in this uh, in this webinar that is new to people and uh, will only, of course, make them hungry for more. And, and we'll certainly have you back in the future to follow up on this. Now, we've got uh, a bit of time now for, for Q&A. And I wonder, look, if I could just ask you as, as a one off, um, just tell us a little bit about your own personal journey in terms of how God led you you know, from being a medical student in a, in a arguably quite comfortable, well-off country to getting into prison work and then in, in the, your wider international interests in this. What, how, how did, how did uh, you know, and obviously we haven't got a huge amount, I'm sure this could be a talk in itself, but, but how, did, how did God prompt you and make you aware of this and lead you into this work? It was a CMF conference as a student when my husband, Mark, who's now... Uh, the boss of CMF UK, uh, as Peter said, and I felt that God may be calling us to overseas work, but we didn't know which speciality or which country, so we just carried on, um, and I ended up becoming a GP rather than a surgeon because um, I had a special needs child, and as a GP, I felt disillusioned looking after middle-class patients. It's very important that everyone gets good care, but I come from quite a working class background, a, a, quite a poor city. I felt more comfortable dealing with patients who were uh, from the bottom end of society. And that led me to start working with the police, um, looking after people who've been arrested in inner city London, and lots of um, foul language, lots of substance misuse, lots of injuries, lots of forensic medicine. And I realized that this was where God wanted me. This was my mission field, even though it was the UK. I hadn't gone overseas. We set up a not-for-profit company, Integritas. We turned 10 years, 10 years of age, just this month, 1st of July, um, 2012. And we landed a large contract with a lot of money coming in uh, to do high secure prison medicine in the UK, which was somewhat unexpected. And because we're a not-for-profit company, we had to spend the money quickly. And so we started praying about what to do with the money. Long story short, I had a dream about being tortured and ill-treated myself in a prison cell in a, some kind of hot, horrific uh, country situation. And we started praying into that. I saw a documentary on um, uh, the TV on my birthday when I should have been going out for a meal. And, uh, I, we had to cancel that for long story reasons. And um, I realized that actually there are so many places in the world that don't have prison doctors. And so we did some research and uh, really came to believe that that's what God wanted Integritas to do with its 
profits from high income country work. When you work in poor countries, prisons and police stations, you see torture day in, day out, some countries more than others. So I had to learn to become an expert and it's been a very steep learning curve. Yeah, well, that's an amazing story. And we're just hearing a snapshot there, but um, it's uh, extraordinary that the way when you step out in faith in, in response to something God really puts on your heart, you never quite know where he's going to lead you. And uh, it can be uh, beyond your, your wildest dreams, perhaps places you'd never contemplate. A number of people are asking, um, Rachel, do you ever feel that your own well-being is at risk, either as a result of repeated exposure to the effect of man's depravity or, or, or even physically from the powers that be because you identify and expose injustice? Uh, long story short, yes, most definitely. Uh, spiritually as well. Um, I've just been struck down with the most ghastly earache out of the blue. Um, I, everyone gets earache, but we've experienced during this trip and Esther is our first pandemic era face-to-face -face elective student who got back into it after two years of operating virtually. We've seen repeated spiritual attacks every night before something has happened that we're doing a new clinic or relaunching a service in a different way. Something has gone wrong. There's been lots of prayer going on here and I'm so grateful for godly team members here, Esther and her husband. Um, and it's definitely a spiritual minefield. And I'm not a Christian who sees a lot of spiritual attack behind everything. I'm not always interpreting things like that, but I know that that's what is going on here. Physically, I have been threatened. Um, and that's even caused us to have to move our base from not far from here to where we are now. And I've, ha I have been, um, I've had a very nasty hack, which could have landed me in jail with explicit material put onto my Facebook account yeah. that appeared that I'd done it. That could have landed me in serious, serious trouble. And that was in response to exposing um, something going on. And I think mentally, yes, although actually the only time I've really felt oppressed mentally and, and sort of depressed and angry about what was going on was when I worked as a sexual offence examiner for three years, just doing that in the UK. I started hating all men. So did all the other women doing the same work. So we decided to meet once a month as a group and debrief each other and buddy up and that kind of thing. I actually have a standing arrangement with a counsellor to talk through issues every month, even if I don't think I have anything to say, because it's so important to have this clinical supervision. And sometimes I will make a specific appointment if there's a particular thing bothering me. Yeah, uh, thanks for that reminder. It's, um, we fight that you can see man's inhumanity and just to be reminded that we fight not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and that there are spiritual forces driving this as well. Just to pick up on your last point, in terms of your own psychological self-care, following your contact with torture victims, how do you, you've talked about counseling and the support group, how do you process what you experience and, and uh, what lasting changes are you noticing 
in your relationships and belief structures as a result of that? I think it largely depends on your personality and the style of Christian you are. <laughs> and I'm a very practical responder. I only tend to feel um, deeply disturbed in my soul if it's something that I cannot do something about. I'm not at all squeamish. One thing I would say is I never watch torture scenes on films. I won't watch a James Bond torture scene. There's always one thrown in. You know, he um, saves the first part of the world in the morning, gets tortured in the afternoon, in the evening, takes a beautiful woman out for dinner and then finishes saving the world. It's not like that. I yeah. don't see torture as entertainment. I get angry when people say, oh, it was pure torture watching that. You, you don't know what torture is. Um, we shouldn't use that word. But I'm a practical responder. And as long as I can do something, even if that's writing a letter to an embassy saying, did you know this person's being tortured? What are you going to do about it? Um, then I feel that I'm um, moving forward. I journal quite a lot in my head. I don't keep a physical journal. I, I write things out in my head. I swim. I'm, I'm an introvert. I make sure I go swimming at least once a day um, when I'm out here in the Philippines. And I'm very protective of that time. So uh, was it this morning? I missed my wider team's devotions because uh, my usual swimming time, something urgent had come up. And I know that actually for me, time swimming and praying and relaxing by the pool and being introverted on my own is absolutely crucial, especially when you're in a leadership position. Don't yeah. let the tyranny of the urgent crowd out your uh, need for self-care. And Jesus did that. You know, he got in the boat and crossed the lake, even when there were still throngs of people wanting him to pay attention to them. Yes, no, that, that's really helpful, and, and particularly the emphasis that, that, that different personalities respond in different ways and, and process it in different ways as well. Yeah, and if you um, don't mind, um, just, just yeah. for Esther, um, had a, you had a need to take 24 hours off um, because she, well, you felt affected, didn't you? Mm -hmm. so, yeah, and as a, as a leader, it's very important that you look after your team and are constantly looking out for how they are. And, you know, little things add up. And when the sum of little tiny upsets is, is quite high, um, trauma is synergistic, just like positive things are. You need to acknowledge that you need a break. Yeah. Now, you, you talked about uh, Jesus and the apostles, of course, and the, the references to torture in the Old Testament and the prophetic literature as well. And, of course, the Lord himself faced torture, but also personal threats as well. Have you faced any uh, personal threats from officials because of what you're doing? And, and how have you dealt with those? Yes, I have. Um, it depends on the culture within which the threat is received. As I said, I've had a, a cyber um, attack as well, which uh, I won't go into too much detail on the internet because this is going on YouTube about what happened, but... Well. It comes in many forms. Often the worst threats are the ones that are the politest, um, certainly within certain cultures where shame and hierarchy is important. 
the way I find best to respond to it is not by firing back immediately, not by promising things that you will back off, but just saying thank you for your interesting point that you have raised. I will consider it and get back to you shortly, rather than mouthing off. Are you threatening me? Oh, la, 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 la. Um, but there is almost always a way to deal with these things. And over the years, I've picked up a few tricks. And if anybody would like help in um, how to either one-to-one -one advocate for somebody with an official or uh, I've spoken to government ministers and, you know, committees of people where everyone's got, you know, lots of uniforms on and that kind of thing. How to tackle that is a different approach and requires a great deal of preparation. But if anybody's facing that situation, really love to advise and also pray with you. Yeah, that's great. Um, on the subject of prayer, do you find that your work gives you opportunities to identify, encourage and pray with uh, for for those persecuted for their faith, have you have you met people who have been in prison, you know, simply because they are Christian believers, for example? I have many now, even within countries that are culturally and even officially Christian countries. There's there's two ways people end up in prison because of their faith. One is because that faith is frankly illegal within the country. So. Mm -hmm. We've all seen high profile cases in the media where a Christian's accused of blasphemy or of trying to convert another person away from the national faith. So you could end up in prison because of your faith directly, but more commonly I find in this day and age, it's indirect. So I don't believe that doing good works gets me to heaven. You know, we're saved through faith, um, and grace not through works but being a Christian being truly saved and assured of your salvation through Jesus Christ should make us want to do what God says and God says as we've seen in the passages we shared that we should be standing up and advocating for the poor and the oppressed and the ill-treated if you act on that as a Christian if you really do put into practice biblical justice, then you will get yourself into situations that other people don't go there. And that means that you are more likely to end up in trouble yourself. And so most of the Christians I've met behind bars have been there, not because they're a Christian directly, but because they put Christianity into practice and stood up for the poor and the oppressed. And that is difficult, but it is a tremendous um, privilege to, to share with them, to prioritize their care, uh, and also to advocate where you can. And in fact, we have named our uh, expertise in advocacy service after one particular man I found in a Philippine jail who'd been there for 23 years by the time he was found not guilty and released but due to the uh, physical effects on his body of 23 years in difficult conditions, he developed chronic renal failure. Uh, we helped him with dialysis, uh, but dialysis isn't always done very well in certain places. 
and he kept getting a lot of flash pulmonary edema and eventually he said to me you know actually I'm thinking maybe I just want to go to be with Jesus now and so he made the decision to stop dialysis and he died so the Jerry Serrano Center is named after the bravest Christian I've ever met behind bars who led many patients and fellow prisoners to Christ and even in the interval between his release and his death came back every week to the same jail to um, help preach uh, with a church that we partner with who do a spiritual ministry and he acted as my personal interpreter when we were doing what's called medical mission here and that was just a tremendous um, privilege to know him and now to honour his memory through our own expertise and advocacy service. Oh, that's a wonderful testimony. Esther, can, can I ask you, you've been there for a few months, um, what's the, the main thing that you're going to take out of this elective and, and how, how is it shaping uh, you know, the, your, your future as it's emerging, do you, do you think? How, how has this elective changed you really, I, I guess I'm asking. Wow, that's a big question. I think in many ways. Um, I've certainly seen a side of humanity and the darkness of life I hadn't seen before. The importance of asking difficult questions, asking them sensitively and being ready for answers that are quite shocking. Yeah. Um, I think I've seen the beauty as well of theology and medicine going hand in hand as we do um, medical missions, um, looking after mental and spiritual health and seeing a person holistically in these settings. Often they just like to chat. So seeing people as vulnerable people, as well as their impressive um, lack of teeth and other ailments that you don't see um, in the UK healthcare setting. So it's, it's definitely spiked my interest in yeah. patient groups, particularly prisoners. Sure. And, and so what would you say to someone, uh, you know, at your stage, there'll be lots of students in medicine and dentistry from all over the world watching this program who are thinking, well, uh, might this be something I could do, an, an elective like this to learn more about? What, what would you say to them? Well, absolutely. And I think there's lots of opportunities in the UK as well um, to see within psychiatric prisons and see GPs behind bars in the UK. Um, but there are opportunities to see it abroad too and the CMF Health and Justice Tract um, is another educational opportunity. It is something you don't see in medical uh, school and do need to look a bit further for um, but there's many fields that medical school doesn't show you but can provide fascinating careers that I'm just learning about now. Yeah. We also have opportunities for people doing um, F3 years in, in, um, in a resource poor environment and for more senior doctors as well we've just got the most amazing head of healthcare working under me very experienced British CMF member who's you know got a lot of policy writing experience and is revolutionizing revolutionizing our um, what I thought was already quite good but you know showing just way, where we are lacking and how we can do it better so there's always um, a gap for somebody to say, well, these are the skills I've got. How can I help? Even if you're a linguist, you know, we have a lot of patient information leaflets that need interpreting, translating, whatever your skill mix, if you want to get involved in this area and you're sure that's what God wants you to do, there's a way for you to dip your toe into the water to start getting involved. 
Yeah, and that it just emphasizes how this is a, a real response to the whole body of Christ, isn't it? People with different experiences, giftings, callings, and so on. And if you've been moved by this presentation, perhaps to pray along the lines of how God might use you. And, and it, the important thing is to say, here, here I am, please use me. And then he will lead you and guide you in the way. Uh, sadly, we've run out of time. We could go on for a lot longer. Uh, but I just wanted to ask you, just in closing, Rachel, um, we, we know you start in the UK, you've had this work in the Philippines, which has grown you. There'll be a lot of people listening to this presentation from other parts of the world. Do you work or know other people with a similar calling in sub-Saharan Africa, for example? So could, could you just tell us a little bit about um, the, you know, the network of people like you in different countries and how people who are not in the Philippines or, or Indonesia might be? So we have some partners that are on our website as sort of friends and official links. The issue is that in many countries, this is done in a very ad hoc um, or secret way. Um, sometimes if I go and do a case in another country, the Philippines is a, is a traditionally Christian country, Roman Catholic. Um, there isn't a problem with us operating here as long as we don't offend anybody and we're careful. But in many countries, the whole subject is just so difficult that there is nothing official. I know lots of people and organizations, uh, if you want to get in touch, I will help you. We do actually see cases from every continent in the world, every World Health Organization region. But the pandemic has dealt us um, a silver lining because telemedicine is now a lot more acceptable behind bars authorities are willing to use it so we're increasingly utilizing our telemedicine service and growing it so that we can reach across the globe and again if people would like to help with that or you would like if you've got a case that you actually want help with you can book an appointment and we'll help if you just want to talk about how can i get involved again please get in touch and we'll talk in confidence offline well off the internet publicly yeah thank, thanks very much and, and actually in closing you've answered one of the other questions uh, mm -hmm. that we didn't get to so so that's great so uh, uh, Rachel and Esther thanks so much for an incredibly challenging stimulating presentation really comprehensive overview thanks for educating us for challenging us so thank you both very much